invite you to open your Bible to the book of Revelation chapter 14 as we really see the events that are taking place in fact right now unfold before our eyes through Revelation as a part of God's plan, as a part of God's prophecy, as a part of God's timeline. I want you to know something tonight that God has His timeline in regards to the rapture and the second coming and judgment and the tribulation, and He will honor His plan, and He will use man to honor and accomplish His purpose. So here in chapter 14, as we pick up in verse 14, we have a foreword here, a few chapters, in regards to what we are to expect now in the later half of the book of Revelation. And here the Apostle John in the island of Patmos is receiving that vision. That vision in regards to the consummation now of the judgment of God upon this earth now because of His wickedness, because of its rebellion, and because of its sin. And here we see in chapter 14 that here the Lord uses through this vision images or illustrations of agriculture to now remind John or to tell him that the judgment of God is ripe. He uses harvesting terms. In fact, he used the term of first fruits to describe the 144,000 that were redeemed. He then used the term of wine to describe the cup of judgment that is to come. And then today we're going to see that he uses that term of reaping. That he uses that term of reaping because the judgment now, or the end, is near. The end is near. Near. If you like taking notes, write this down as the title of the message, The Revelation of Consummation. What does it mean? Everything's coming to an end here. The Revelation of Consummation. Why? Because the end is near. I heard a story of, of a pilot that was flying his plane. And as he was flying his plane, there was a severe engine trouble that his engine was failing him. He got on the radio and he now called the dispatch command center and he said, we're 400 miles away from the land, 400 miles away from the land, 800 feet only above water. We're losing fuel quickly. Please advise. Please advise. He said that the dispatcher on the radio came back and said, repeat after me, our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. The end was near. And the end here, as the Apostle John is giving us this revelation of consummation, is he was reminding us here that the end is near. Now let's look here in verse 14 of chapter 14 in regards to what John the Apostle sees that describes now the reaping. You see, there was a time that Jesus described Himself as a sower, that He came and He sowed seeds in His first coming. First, He came as a sower, but there's going to be a time during the judgment and during the tribulation period that He's going to come as a reaper. And that's exactly the time of judgment that we will read about tonight. Let's read here Revelation 14, verse 14. And then I looked, and behold, a white cloud, and on the cloud saw one like the Son of Man, having on his head a golden crown, and in his hand a sharp sickle. And another angel came out of the temple, crying with a loud voice to him, who sat on the cloud, thrust in your sickle and reap, for the time has come for you to reap, for the harvest of the earth is ripe. So he who sat on the cloud thrust his sickle on the earth, and the earth was reaped. Let's pray. Lord, Heavenly Father, we come before You. And we know, Lord, that the end is near. That, Lord, the only thing that we are waiting for is that You would rapture us in a moment, in a twinkling of an eye. And that Your timeline of judgment will unfold on this earth. That judgment will come and Your wrath will come in full force. So we ask, Lord, that You would find us watching and that You would find us waiting that we would be those people that are watching and waiting, that we are ready. 
So Lord, teach us, speak to us today in Jesus' name. And together we said, Amen. Now you notice here the reaping that takes place here. The reaping, number one, of the earth's harvest. The reaping of the earth's harvest. Here the earth's harvest represents the ungodly people that are here during the great tribulation that have not given themselves over to Christ. As we read chapter 14, there's going to be angels and warnings and signs and witnesses and 144,000 evangelists during this time. But the reaping speaks of the judgment to those that decided to remain in their rebellion and to worship the beast, the image of the beast now, and also take the mark of the beast, which is 666. And look at the description here as he separates now the wheat from the chaff now, as we learn in the parables there in the Gospels. But it says this in verse 14, Then I looked, and behold, a white cloud, and on the cloud sought one, like the Son of Man having his head a golden crown, and his hand a sharp sickle. There in verse 14, we see that John now has a vision or it has a revelation of one like the Son of Man. And as we study that description, we know that he is speaking of there in verse 14 of Jesus. In fact, he says there's one there coming, sitting on a cloud, having on his head a golden crown. Now I want you to circle that, those two descriptions, on a white cloud now and a golden crown. This golden crown now represents victory. It's a crown now or a wreath now that was given or worn by those who celebrated victory in war or in an athletic competition. So here he's introducing or he's now receiving a revelation of Jesus now being presented on the clouds coming now in the second coming in victory. You see, Jesus came the first time as a humble servant and in His second coming, He'll come as a conquering King, triumphant conqueror, now coming out of heaven to prevail over His enemies. So how does He describe Jesus there in verse 14? In His power. He describes Jesus in His glory. He describes Jesus in His majesty. Here is the description of Jesus at His second coming. Well, write these verses down because they refer and give us back a reference that this in fact is Christ. In fact, Daniel chapter 7, verse 13, Daniel would say this, And I was watching in the night visions, and behold, one like the Son of Man, coming with the clouds of heaven, He came to the Ancient of Days. How does He come? One, now, on the clouds of heaven. He describes Him that way. In Matthew chapter 24, Jesus Himself, speaking now of end times, describes Himself coming in this same manner. Matthew 24, verse 30, would say this, Then a sign of the Son of Man will appear in heaven. Notice, And then all of the tribes of the earth will mourn, and they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. Do you see here the power and great glory described now, even in Revelation chapter 14? Write this other verse down. Matthew 26, verse 64. Matthew 26, verse 64. And Jesus said to him, It is as you have said, Nevertheless, I say to you, Hereafter you will see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of power and coming on the clouds of heaven. Here, Jesus is now revealed to John at His second coming on the clouds wearing a crown of victory and on His hand, notice what He holds there, it said, in His hand, a sharp sickle. Now this is now a farmer or a harvesting tool. It's a razor sharp now, curved steel iron blade. And if you've ever seen it in a picture or in a an image now, you see that it has a wooden handle now. And that sickle represents a harvesting tool that now a farmer would cut through now that wheat to now cut the grain now in a swift and devastating way. 
Now, why does he say sickle? Because that's exactly how the judgment of Christ will come on the earth very swift and devastating as a farmer's sickle that is now going through the wheat and the field. And notice the distinction here because we see that the first time Jesus came, He comes to die for sins, but the next time Jesus comes in His second coming, He comes to judge the sins. The first time He came to pay the price for sin, the second time He comes now to punish sin. And it says in verse 15, And another angel came out of the temple crying with a loud voice to him who sat on the cloud. Another angel comes. Thrust your sickle and reap, for the time has come. Notice, God's eternal decrees. God's eternal timeline now. His time has come now. For Christ to judge the world. So it says He heard another angel. And it says, swing that sickle for the time has come now. And notice, for you to reap for the harvest of the earth is ripe. He's going to talk about two different harvests. First, the harvest of the earth and then the vine of the earth. The harvest of the earth represents the ungodly people that did not repent. And he uses this word that says, the harvest of the earth is ripe. When you read that word ripe, understand he's talking about the harvest now is withered. It's dried up. It's overripe. It's, it's rotting now. It's overdue for judgment. Why is it overdue for judgment? Why is it ripe in that manner? Because God has been patient with this world that many would come to salvation. And he's saying now the harvest is ripe. It's ready for judgment. Notice what happens in verse 16. It says, So when he who sat on the cloud thrust his sickle on the earth, and the earth was reaped. He thrust that sickle, that harvesting tool, as it would represent. It says the grain, or the ungodly people there, God's judgment now, is being permitted now on those that were sowing seeds of iniquity now that grow up, and now they are ripe now as He's ready to judge them. Do you remember in the parable of the sower in Matthew chapter 13 where he says, should we now separate the wheat from the chaff now? And those tares? And he says, no, let them grow together. And at one time, the Lord's going to send those angels, now the reapers, to cut off all all the tares now that they would not damage the grain. But it says that fulfillment now, God's patience now has come to an end. And in verse 16, we see that the parable of the wheat and the tares is fulfilled. God is dealing here with the tares now. God is now judging the tares. Those that grew up in sin and remained in sin. Do you see the fulfillment there of that parable? That one day God will send the reapers to come and deal with the tares. This is exactly what he's referring to now. One day, God will come in judgment as a reaper to deal with those that remained and grew and sowed their lives. Lives of sin, lives of iniquity, lives of rebellion. Notice what happens in verse 17. Then another angel came out of the temple which is in heaven, he also having a sharp sickle. And notice what happens. And another angel came out from the altar who had the power over fire and he cried with a loud voice, here it says, to him who had the sharp sickle saying, thrust in your sharp sickle and gather the clusters of the vine of the earth. So first, now use your sickle on the harvest of the earth, which is individuals and people. And now, this other angel comes and it says that John saw saw an angel now cry out and say, thrust your sharp sickle on the vine of the earth. What does the vine of the earth represent? It represents the opposite of the true vine. In John 15, Jesus said that He is the true vine. And if we abide in Him, and now in in Him and us, we will bear much fruit. So here, the vine of the earth is a false vine. Vine that represents false religion or the Satan's system or the world's system there in verse 18. This vine here represents the grapes 
that are ripe for judgment now. We know that even today, man in his own effort, think about this, apart from God, has developed an apostate religion. And there, even at that time, the beast will set up his own false religion to worship himself, to worship his image. And here he's saying, now go and deal with the vine of the earth. Deal with the false religion or with the institution now. So he goes and he deals with it. And you see here that an angel comes out out from the altar with power, with fire. What does that represent there? Some commentators believe there in verse 18 that the angel that comes out, he comes out of the altar, and there in the altar, in the brazen altar, what do you have? The prayers of the saints. And there he's answering the prayers of those that were crying out for judgment, crying out for justice, crying out for vindication, those martyred believers. So now he's saying, come and deal with the vine of the earth. Now you notice first the harvest of the earth and then the vine of the earth. Ungodly people and false religion. God will deal with both of them. Let's keep reading there in verse 19. So the angel thrust his sickle into the earth and gathered the vine of the earth. So the angel, what did he do? He dealt now with that false religion, with the false institution, with the world and demonic now system that the Antichrist had set up. And it said here now, notice what happens, and of the earth and gathered the vine of the earth or all of those false religions and world systems and threw them in a great wine press of the wrath of God. Now this wine press of the wrath of God here symbolizes now a bloodshed. The word wine press, when you think about a wine press, is that they gather grapes and these, these are the grapes of wrath. And they put them on a wine press, and what happens as they smash those grapes? The, the, the juice comes out, right, of those grapes. Well, here, that wine press was, would represent a bloodshed or a war that would take place. In fact, verse 20 describes it to us more in detail in regards to that wine press. In fact, notice what it says And the wine press was trampled outside of the city. What city is it referring to? Jerusalem. The wine press. He would gather those world systems, those different nations now, and outside of Jerusalem now, he would gather them now, and they would be trampled outside of Jerusalem, and the blood came out of the wine press up to the horse's bridle, and for 1,600 furlongs. What does this describe? A mass war and bloodshed. Verse 20 here, he says, in fact, the blood came up to a horse's bridle. That's four feet high of blood. Just think about that type of war between different nations. And then it describes here now 600 furlongs. What does it represent here? It represents the wrath of God here on earth. A horrendous slaughter now. Four feet high, a horse's bridle, and 180 miles long outside of the city this type of bloodshed would take place now. Now what is he talking about? What is he referring there in verse 20? This is anticipating the final judgment of the world. What is that called? The battle of Armageddon. A lot of times when we're looking at the news right now, we're seeing now the tension in the Middle East and in Russia now who is flexing their power and their authority over Ukraine. And knowing that ultimately what's going to happen is that in the Middle East, the surrounding countries that are there in the Middle East are going to come and now form a coalition. And what are they going to do? Invade Israel. <laughs> but they're not going to prevail. It says that here outside of the city, it's going to be a bloodshed. In fact, Joel chapter 3, verse 13 speaks of this. Would you write this verse down? Joel chapter 3, verse 13, it says, Let the nations be awakened. And come up to the valley of Jehoshaphat. The valley of Jehoshaphat is a valley that's outside of the city of Jerusalem. You visit Jerusalem, you see this valley there. For there I will sit to judge the surrounding nations. And put in the sickle, for the harvest is ripe. There I will judge the world, the nations, the systems of the world. Come go down, for the winepress is full, the vats overflow, for their wickedness is great. Multitudes, multitudes in the valley of decision. It's a valley there outside of Jerusalem 
For the day of the Lord is near in the valley of decision. You know what that valley is called there? Megiddo. <laughs> and right there, it's, it's a valley outside of the city of Jerusalem. It's called Megiddo, surrounded by hills. It's just an open field. It was interesting to be there even back in November with the group here of Calvary. And you see this valley, and you start to think about that's exactly where everyone, everything's going to end. And it has roads that lead up to this valley where the different now surrounding nations can access this valley. And the Bible says that there in that valley of Megiddo, it will be the, ba- the battle of where we get that word Megiddo, we get the, the word Armageddon. <laughs> in Revelation chapter 16, verse 16, it speaks of this very battle, the battle of Armageddon. This is when now God will judge the entire world at His second coming. Revelation 16, 16 describes this. It says, And they gathered them together to the place called in Hebrew Armageddon. What happens here? The armies of the world would gather against Jerusalem. This is why right now, as we look at the events that are taking place in our world, keep your eye on Israel. Because when they are continuously being surrounded by their enemies, and they're being threatened by their enemies, notice what's going to happen. We know that the time is near. And Jerusalem will be attacked, the Bible says, but they will not be destroyed. In the end, they will be spared. God will defend them against the nations of the world. Zechariah chapter 14, write this down, verse 1. It describes this attack against Jerusalem outside of the city in the valley of Megiddo. Zechariah 14.1 would say this, Behold, the day of the Lord is coming. The day of the Lord. The day of the Lord represents that time of His second coming or represents also the battle of Armageddon, the judgment that is to come on this earth. And your spoil will be divided in your midst, for will gather the nations to the battle against Jerusalem. Notice, there will be a battle. God is orchestrating these things. This is why we must not be afraid. I hear a lot of people today, uh, they're filled with fear when they look at the things that are taking place in our world. They're afraid of Russia. I'm going to tell you, you don't have to be afraid of Russia. We already fear God. We have nothing else to fear. We fear the Lord. And everything that is happening, if you open your Bible and you look at the Bible and you look at His timeline, everything that's supposed to happen is happening. Nothing is an accident. Everything that God does, He does with a purpose. So notice it would say, Zechariah 14, verse 2, And I will gather the nations to battle against Jerusalem, and the city shall be taken, the houses riffled, and the women ravished. Half of the city shall go into captivity, but the remnant of the people shall not be cut off of the city. The Lord will go forth and fight against those nations. God will defend the nation of Israel as He fights in the day of battle. See, today, God is speaking today to a world in the age of grace and the dispensation of grace, but the world doesn't listen. There's going to be a time when God's going to come in judgment. He's not going to come in grace. He's going to come in judgment. And He's going to come as a farmer would come to reap. He's going to come to judge, to separate the wheat from the tares. That's what we have to be very important. What are you sowing into in your life right now? How is it that you're sowing into the kingdom of God? Are you sowing into the Spirit or are you sowing into the flesh? Are you ready for the coming of Christ? For the rapture of the church? It's in Galatians chapter 6, verse 7, that he reminds us to know where we must be sowing. <laughs> where are you sowing as you wait for the coming of Christ? Galatians 6, verse 7. Would you write this down, church? Do not be deceived. Paul tells the Galatians. Don't be lied to. Don't be scared. Don't be fooled. The world is full of deception. God is not mocked. You can't fool God. You can't lie to God. You may think that you can lie to people. You may think that you can manipulate a situation, but you cannot lie to God. God is not going to be mocked on that day. On that day where we have to stand before God, it's, we are going to stand alone. No one's going to stand there with you. 
God will not be mocked for whatever a man sows, that a man will reap. What are you sowing into tonight, today? For whatever a man sows, he shall also reap. For he who sows to the flesh will also reap of the flesh corruption. But he who sows to the Spirit will of the Spirit reap everlasting life. Are you sowing to the flesh today? Because it's, here it says it very clearly in His Word. That we're gonna, if we sow to the flesh, we are going to reap corruption. And then it gives us an encouragement as we wait. And let us not grow weary in while doing good. Don't be discouraged today. Don't be afraid. Don't, don't doubt. Don't be filled with doubt or with fear. It says, do not grow weary while doing good. Don't give in. Don't want to quit now. Because it says, for in due season, we shall reap if we don't lose heart. You think about how many people, oftentimes, before it's time to reap, they lose heart. And oftentimes, we miss out on the blessing that God has for us because we've been sowing to the Spirit, but then we are tired because of the pressures of this world. And what happens? We give in before it's time to reap. In due season, it's His season. It's not your season. You shall reap if you don't lose hearts. In fact, he encourages the church. Paul there in Galatians 6, he says, therefore, as we have opportunity, God has given us an opportunity right now. In this age of grace, as we wait for His now coming, as we have an opportunity, let us do good to all. Be busy about His business to all, especially to those who are of the household of the faith that you would be busy serving one another until He comes. That you would be sowing to the Spirit. That you would be busy serving one another. And here in Revelation chapter 15 now, it's the introduction of the grand finale of judgments. We have the judgments of the seals that began there in Revelation chapter 5 and 6. Then we have the now judgment of the trumpets. The seven trumpets that were blown that brought a different type of judgment during that seven-year period tribulation. And now the grand finale is the judgment of the bowls. This is the last wrath of God upon this earth before He comes again. God has been gracious. God is gracious to us today. He's merciful. He's patient. But there is going to be a time where His grace will be over. And notice, even as we read chapter 15, that God knows how and when to begin judgment and when to end judgment. God is a very patient God. He's very long-suffering. He's waiting for us to repent. He's waiting for us to share our faith. And He's in control of all of these events from start to finish. He is in control. God is never in a hurry. He is not going to rush this time. In fact, when it begins, it will begin quickly. But it's until now the rapture of the church, the seven seals, the seven trumpets now, and now the seven bowls. And each judgment progressively as it continues, it gets even worse. But now here as we see in verse 15 that they are now all exhausted, the judgments that were to come. And the worst is now coming in verse 15 and 16. Satan then will be bound. God will usher His a thousand year kingdom. And He will rule and reign on this earth. Now notice the vengeance of God in verse 15, verse, chapter 15, verse 1. Then I saw another sign in heaven, great and marvelous. Another sign where? The sign is in heaven. I want you to circle that in your Bible. When we're reading the book of Revelation, oftentimes we, He takes us from heaven to earth. And right now here in chapter 15, John is seeing a great and marvelous event of great significance now. And it says here now, the event was that seven angels having the seven last plagues. For in them, the wrath of God is complete. That word plague means wounds or wrath. Divine judgment. For in these last seven plagues, notice as it describes it, in them, the wrath of God is complete. His passionate anger His judgment here, the wrath of God, 
is fulfilled. His purpose to judge is fulfilled in these last seven plagues now. God isn't just blowing off steam here. He isn't just upset. He has something to fulfill here. He has a purpose behind His judgment. Everything that God does have a, has a purpose. This is exactly why in verse 1 it says the word complete. He's bringing it to conclusion now on a disobedient and contrary world. It's exactly what Matthew 24 writes. As Jesus would say this, for then there will be great tribulation such as has never been since the beginning of the world until this time, no, nor ever shall be. This is the time that He's describing. During the judgment where these bulls or these vials, as some would describe it as well, would be unleashed and served upon this world. Now what is it followed by this judgment? By the second coming after this, the seven bulls and then the marriage of the Supper of the Lamb. How many of us are looking forward to be there at the marriage of the Supper of the Lamb where we will be there dressed in white linen, the church, and we're going to be fellowshipping with the Lord. But notice as we look at these verses, His timing is impeccable. His timing is impeccable. And His faithfulness is unshakable. God's faithfulness is unshakable now. Notice what happens here. Because it says in verse 2, And I saw something like a sea of glass mingled with fire in heaven. And those who have victory over the beast, over the image, and over his mark, and over the number of his name, standing on the sea of glass, having harps of God. Uh, uh, of God. And, and notice that it describes here, because he's saying, I, I saw in heaven a sea of glass now. Think about that. And it was mixed with fire. Now the sea represents the reflection of the glory and of the holiness of God. The reflection of the glory and of the holiness of God. The sea and glass. But if you read that verse, it says in verse 2 that it is mixed or mingled with fire. What does this mean, fire? It speaks of judgment. So the judgment of God is coming now, or it's proceeding from God's righteousness and God's holiness. The judgment that is coming is coming from the holiness of God. And he says, I saw those that have overcome the beast, his image, and did not receive his mark. I saw them. Who is he speaking of? Tribulation saints that were martyred. That paid the ultimate price. In Revelation 12, verse 11, what did it describe? It says, they did not love their lives unto death. You want to be able to live a life that's worthy of God? A life that truly matters today? Then don't hold on to your life so dearly. Don't always want to be in charge of what's taking place in your life. Lose your life so that you can find it. Isn't that what Jesus said? He who tries to save his life is going to lose it. But he who loses his life for my sake will find it in heaven. Should we not be a people that's saying, I'd rather that my name be written in heaven than it's written and recognized here on earth? I don't want the recognition of man. I want to be recognized in the presence of God. Recognized in the presence of the Father. And these martyrs there are being recognized in the presence of the Father. And, and it's said now here that they did not receive or they overcame the beast. They didn't cooperate with the satanic system of that time now. They were dependent of the Lord even for their daily needs and daily bread. It would say that whoever didn't take the mark would not be able to sell or buy. But here in Revelation 15 verse 2, it describes this group now that had gone through the fire of persecution. I want you to know that they had gone through the fire of persecution. And it says there in verse 2, they were standing on the sea. Circle the word, verse 2, standing. They were standing at the end of persecution. Having gone through persecution, having given their life, paid the ultimate price to honor God. We learn here that at the end, guess what? We are standing on the presence of God. That we remain standing. That we can be overcomers of the world system. Why? Because they practice faith and practice Patience. 
you not love it that these here it describes that these saints that gave their life for the Lord, that they were standing? It, it didn't say that they looked slain there in heaven. It said that they were standing. But it said also that they had now in their hands harps. What were they? They were worshipers. You know, even for us, as we've experienced spiritual redemption, you know what the Lord does? He gives us the opportunity to respond in worship. And what were they doing now? They were giving blessing to God. They were worshiping the Lord for their ultimate deliverance. They were singing and they were filled with worship to God through trials. Are you going through a trial right now? Maybe you're facing the pressure of persecution or of this world right now. You know what God's calling you to do? He's calling you to worship him. Because you can either become bitter in your trial or you can become better in the presence of God. Better in the presence of God. The better response, I want you to know this, the better response to pain is always worship to God. The better response to pain is not bitterness, but it is worship to God. I want to give you three verses when it comes to our worship to God or as you're going through trials. Number one, your help comes from God. Would you remember that? Your help comes from God. Are you going through a trial right now? Your help comes from God. Use that harp that He's given you. Use the song that He's given you to worship Him. The psalmist would say in Psalms 121 verse 1, I lift up my eyes to the hills. I lift up my eyes to the hills. From where comes my help? My help comes from the Lord who has made the heaven and the earth. He will not allow your foot to be moved and He will keep you from slumber. Isn't this amazing here that even the David the psalmist would say as he's running away from his enemies, as he himself is experiencing persecution, I lift up my eyes to the hills. Where does my help come from? Today, as you maybe you turn on the news, where does my help come from? It comes from the Lord. It doesn't come from a president. It doesn't come from policies. It doesn't come from a political party. Don't depend on any of those things. All of them will fail you. Your help comes from God. Number two, after suffering, after suffering comes glory. Do you find yourself in a situation right now where maybe you're experiencing suffering? Well, I want you to know that after suffering, if you are in Christ, you have hope that after suffering comes glory. Romans 8, verse 18. You know what Paul tells the church that was suffering? Paul himself speaks of his own life. He says, I consider that the sufferings of this present time, the suffering that I'm going through right now, whether it's a, an, an, an emotional thing, whether it's a spiritual thing, whether it's a mental thing, whatever it is, I consider the sufferings of this present time. They're not worthy to be compared with the glory which will be revealed in us. That little pain that I'm going through right now, it's nothing in compared to the glory that's going to be revealed in heaven. It's only for a small time. After this suffering comes glory in heaven. And then finally, the third verse I want to give you in regards to this is that His perfect will will accomplish His purpose. His perfect will. Not your perfect will. His perfect will. Romans 8.28, what does it say? We know that all things work together for good. Not some things, all things. Not the things that feel good. Everything's worked together for good to those who love God and those who are called according to His purpose. What does that mean? That you may have not chosen that situation for yourself, but God chose it for you because it's going to bring a good purpose and His will out of your life. Just think about that, whichever it is that you're going through right now. You may have not chosen it for yourself. One trial after the other trial after the other trial. Why, Lord, am I going through all of this? But you know what He's calling you to do? Worship Him right now. That's where the strength is, is in worshiping the Lord. Notice in verse 3, it says, And they sing the song of Moses, the servant of God, and of the song of the Lamb, saying, These are those saints that had given their lives for their faith. And notice what they find themselves doing. They are singing, this is their posture, singing the song of Moses and the song of the Lamb. You know what the... the common theme here of the Song of Moses and the Song of the Lamb is deliverance and redemption. 
They're singing a song of deliverance. That's the posture of a person that has gone through persecution with their eyes on the Lord. Worship. That is the position of a person that has gone through trials with their eyes on the Lord. Worship. Notice what the song is. It says here, the song of Moses represented deliverance from the bondage of now Egypt, their exodus. It says that they sang a song when they crossed there, the Red Sea, and Pharaoh now was coming after them. They were now there caught on that Red Sea as the, the sea came in on them. After the entire nation of Israel had crossed, they sang a song worshiping the Lord there. It's in Exodus chapter 15, verse 2, you hear the lyrics of the song. In fact, they would say this, the Lord is my strength. If you're going through a trial right now, you need strength, sing that song. The Lord is my strength and my song, and He has become my salvation. He is my God, and I will praise Him, my Father, God, and I will exalt Him. Notice our worship, how it can be so pure unto the Lord. But it also says the song of the Lamb. What does this represent? It represents our redemption in Jesus. It's the first song in Scripture, the song of Moses. And the last song in Scripture, the song of the Lamb. The song of the Lamb speaks of the sacrifice through the blood that gives us the spiritual deliverance. The song of Moses gave them a physical deliverance there at the Red Sea. The song of the Lamb has given us a spiritual now deliverance. And when the nation of Israel was delivered, they sang this song now, a picture of God's faithfulness, of God's ultimate purpose to defeat their enemies now. This is the song that we should have on our lips right now, singing that the Lord is our strength. He is our deliverer. He is our salvation. Think about what an encouragement this was to those believers that were going through persecution. That they can trust in the Lord. They can look to the Lord. For any person that's going through suffering, look at these words. Any person that's going through trials, look at these words. The, the, the Lord's work on the cross now, the song of the Lamb, has been our spiritual exodus. We have now gone through an exodus coming out of the world into a life with God because of the blood of the Lamb. And this chapter here, chapter 15, speaks of our ultimate exodus, the freedom of God's people from a sinful and persecuting world. So notice how the outline of the lyrics of this song, verse 3, it says this, Great and marvelous are your works. They're praising God, number one, for His works. During the time of tribulation, everything that they had seen and everything that was to come, number one, we praise God because of His works. And notice they continue to have Jesus at the center of their song. Your works. Lord God Almighty. God, You are omnipotent. What does that mean? You are all-powerful. This is such a rich and doctrinal song. Just read it. Lord God Almighty. They're worshiping because of His works, but they're also worshiping Him because of His ways. Notice how they describe His ways. Just and true are Your ways. How many times are we focused in our ways? How I would do it. I wouldn't really do it that way, we say. It doesn't matter how you would do it. You're not in charge. What does God want to do? What's the way that He wants to do it in? How has He scheduled it? What's His program like? Just and true are your ways. They're praising God for His ways. Notice as it continues, this song now, O King of the Saints, or O King of the Nations. Now, you have power, authority over history. Nothing happens by accident. Whatever He does is right. Just and true are your ways. Everything that God does is perfect. His ways are perfect. I want you to know that tonight. Worship Him because of His works. Worship Him because of His ways. Psalms 145 verse 17 would say this, The Lord is righteous in all of His ways and in all of His works. Notice verse 4, Who shall not fear You, O Lord, and glorify Your name? Who's not going to fear You and glorify Your name? After everything the earth has seen, after everything the earth has gone through now, 
Why will you not fear God and worship His name? Did you know that one of the marks of a world that has pushed or, or, or not feared God anymore is that they pushed God out in total absence of fear of God? There is no fear of God. Every time we push Him out of, uh, of society, of culture, of this world, it's now an example of that we no longer are a society that fears God. It's a me generation. So self-focused, self-promoting, self-indulgent. What's in it for me? We always think about it. What's in it for me? The latest thing comes out. Pushing God out. There is no fear for God. That's what happens when we have a rebellious people. There no longer is fear for God. There's no longer a thirst for the things of God. Today, does your soul thirst for God, for the things of God? Do you, are you thirsty to be in His presence? Are you thirsty to hear from His Word right now? Because the church always grows weak as its love grows cold. As its love grows cold. Notice that he describes now even the end of verse 4. For you alone are holy. For all nations shall come and worship before you. For your judgments have been manifested. You are holy. Speaks of praising God for His worthiness. Praising God for His works, praising God for His ways, and praising God for His worthiness. All the nations shall come and worship before you. There's going to be a day where every knee shall bow and every tongue shall confess that He is God. It doesn't matter. Even the atheist, the person that doesn't believe that there is a God, their knee will bow one day and they will confess Jesus is God. And you will either confess it in grace or you will confess it in judgment, but one day everyone will confess it. Today we have the opportunity to confess it and receive salvation of God. But notice as they prostrate themselves and surrender, and the song that they're singing here. There are times in our lives where we're going through trials, through persecution, and what are our lips filled with complaints? <laughs> I can't believe that, God, you're letting this happen to me. I can't believe that I'm suffering so much. Lord, why would you allow this to be, take place in my life? Why would you lead me this way? They didn't complain about how they, were, they had suffered. They didn't complain about their trial. They trusted the sovereignty of God. God is in control. I'm going to tell you something. It's going to be so beautiful. In heaven, there is going to be no complaints. He's going to wipe away every tear, every type of pain, and we're, our eyes are going to be fixed on the Lamb. And we're just going to be worshiping Him. It's going to be the presence of God only. You know what we should do today? Practice that. Take your eyes off of other people. Put them on the Lamb of God. So that there would be no complaints coming out of your mouth. You know when complaints happen? When you're focused on yourself instead of on the Lord. And that's how complaints begin. So here he's speaking of two different groups. The group that share two different, have two different destinies. One is worship to God. The other one is the wrath of God. And notice what happens here in verse 5. After these things, I look, and behold, a temple of the tabernacle of testimony in heaven was opened. There in heaven was the temple of God. And the tabernacle was opened. What does it describe here, the tabernacle that was opened? It was symbolic of the holies of holies, the Ark of the Covenant that Moses had built as a replica of heaven. And the holies of holies was open there in heaven. What would take place once a year in Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement? The high priest would go back behind the veil and make atonement for the sins of the people, sacrifice. But here it says in heaven, out of the most holy place, out of the testimony of the tabernacle that was open, notice what comes out of there. And out of the temple come seven angels having the seven plagues that he described in verse 1. Clothed in pure, bright linen, having their chests girded with gold bands. They are clothed like priests, these seven angels. And these seven angels come clothed like priests, reminding us that the judgment of God is completely pure and His judgment is completely righteous. Whatever God does, it does. It's pure and it's righteous. And that's exactly what he's describing here. They come directly from the presence of God. They don't act on their own authority. They are commissioned by God. That place 
that represented mercy and salvation is now representing the throne of judgment. Did you know one day we're going to stand before the white throne judgment? And we're going to have to answer to God. We're going to be held accountable. But we're going to be covered by the blood of the Lamb, Jesus, as we stand before the Father. And it said that these seven angels, in verse 7, it says that one of the four living creatures gave to the seven angels who were clothed like priests, signifying purity and righteousness, they gave them seven golden bowls full of wrath of God who lives forever and ever. They gave them these seven bowls that were filled with the wrath of God. What would they do with those seven bowls? They would now, one by one, they would now pour those bowls of wrath on the earth. They would serve in these bowls the wrath of God completely in full, culminating the consummation of the wrath of God that was coming upon the world from God who, is, who lives forever and ever, who is eternal. And it says in verse 8, the temple was filled with smoke from the glory of God. Notice, God's presence, God's glory, God's power is present even in judgment. He's present even in judgment. And from His power, and no one was able to enter the temple, almost as if in Exodus. It said that, that Moses, when the, when the glory of the Lord now came over that tabernacle. He wasn't able to enter that place, the holy place. And it says here now, no one's able to enter the temple to the seven plagues of the seven angels. Notice, were completed. God has a judgment that he will complete. He will complete. And this is in response to man's unwillingness to repent and turn to the Lord. This is in response to rebellious, now, rejecting world that has rejected the witness of the, the two witnesses of the 144,000 that has ignored the preaching of the angels that were preaching the everlasting gospel that their hearts have grown hard of the people. You know what happens even today? Our hearts grow hard too when God is asking us to follow Him. And you know what we do? We clench our fist. <laughs> we, we become very bitter with words. We hold on to our lives so dearly. And we think we're self-sufficient, we're so wise, have attitudes that are so arrogant. And you know what we start to say? We don't need God. We'll do it ourselves. That's the biggest mistake that we can do. Where you say, you know what? I don't need God. I'll just do this myself. You know what this chapter 15 reminds us? That judgment is so close. Judgment is so close. But I want to tell you tonight, that just like judgment is so close, redemption is also so close. Hope is also so close. Salvation in Jesus is also so close. We just have to turn to Him. We just have to go to Him and say, Lord, today, as you prepare this judgment upon this earth, I know that I can be spared from it if I just turn to you and I say, Lord, it's not about me. It's all about you. I'm coming back to the heart of worship when it's not about me and it's all about you. Let's pray.